You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. Welcome to the Chris Spangle Show. My name is Chris Spangle. Thanks so much for joining me here on the program. And today I'm talking to founder of rebeleducator.co. Her name is Hannah Frankman. We've had her on recently. If you didn't hear that episode, you want to go back and check that out. She is a great guest. And this time we're talking a little bit about the purpose of education. How did public education become the choice for 90% of the population? And why do so many people think that it should be the only choice? And is it? And if you want to make a different choice, how do you navigate that with your friends and family? What are some different models that you can choose? And how much of... We have a discussion about moral formation. Should that be a part of it, or should you just stick to the reading, writing, and arithmetic? So Hannah has a new podcast out, the Hannah Frankman Podcast. Please go check that out. She also gives us a lot of other resources on homeschooling, and make sure you go follow her on Twitter. All right, I want to... And I want to also say thank you to all of our patrons, the people who make this show possible, uh, especially our $100 a month members, Vincent Peichel, Lars Nordskog, Matthew Durbin, Reinhold, Christy Avery, and Jason Doolittle. You guys are all stars. You're the reason the show exists. And if you really enjoy this program and you get something out of it and you find yourself thinking, you know, I'm a little bit smarter after listening to this show, then please go support us over on Patreon, patreon.com slash We Are Libertarians. You support the Chris Spangle Show, and you also support the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Working on some other shows right now, and uh, stay tuned. So, just what I need, another podcast. All right, thanks so much for joining me, and now here's my interview with Hannah right after these messages. Hannah Frankman is the founder of rebeleducator.co, soon to be school by design. Make sure you go to rebeleducator.co, sign up for their email, look out for that, and it may also be called school by design. So you're working on a rebrand. Let's get the housekeeping out of the way here. Why are you changing to school by design instead of rebeleducator.co? First of all, logistically, there's some other stuff out there called Rebel Educator. So as we expand, it's a tough brand to, to own. But also, I think Rebel Educator has been great this past year building a Twitter brand. It's the type of name that builds a lot of controversy. It's very obviously edgy. We have a very clear-cut point of view just from looking at our Twitter handle. And that's played very well. But we've hit a point where... I think there's a limit to the amount of reach that we can have with a name like that and also be offering people products. I think it'd be, we kept putting people in a tough position where they have to explain to the in-laws that they found this thing on Rebel Educator. I'm not sure we're helping on that front. So School by Design is something that I think has a little bit more mass appeal. And we don't just want to be talking to the outlier rebels. We want to be talking to the average parent who wants something besides public school for their kids. And so I think school by design is, it's also very descriptive of what we're doing, but it's a little more perhaps palatable to the average person who's not yet well versed in the problems with public school and has not yet reached the point of outright rebellion in their feelings (laughs) about it. There's there's a funny thing about you'll feel this probably on a deep level as do I. I'm a I'm like the naughty boy in the back of the Sunday school class. I'm still in Sunday school and believe all of it, but I still want to hit my neighbor with spitballs and be a little naughty. There's <laughs> something about our tribe, if you want to call it, that is 
very conservative, but also very rebellious. There's a, mm-hmm. I don't know what, I don't know if that's the American spirit that lives within us, but the, the typical Glenn Beck watcher loves to fight the man, but also loves to be the man. And <laughs> so I could imagine being on the board of this homeschool organization called the Indiana Foundation for Homeschooling, where we put on the graduation, meeting a lot of those parents, they don't want their kids involved in rebellion. But they want to rebel, right? So it's a very odd, funny quirk about so many people that are interested in homeschooling and in the libertarian stream in general. Yes, there definitely is a... (laughs) You definitely run into a lot of that. The the level of comfort with outright rebellion is definitely a spectrum. (laughs) And it's been, again, it's been useful. Like when you're starting to build a brand, you have to really strongly appeal to a very, a subset of people who are willing to be just like completely on board with what you're saying. So having a very strong point of view and stance is helpful. And to be clear, nothing about our stance or positioning or messaging or anything is changing. It's just the name to make it a little easier, I think, for as we get bigger for, we want to have products eventually, and we want to have services and something that sounds a little bit more like a brand and a little less like a commentator, I think is going to be helpful for that. Yeah, But yeah, when there, there's definitely a subset of people who love the rebellion thing, which has actually been fun to be playing with on Twitter the past year. Yeah, it's there's just limits to how many sticks in the eye you can put out and, and edginess <laughs> in general. That's the Chris Spangle Show, We Are Libertarians arc of S posting our way into a good following and then going, all right, maybe we ought to moderate a little bit to, to reach some more people. <laughs> so I, yeah. I totally feel that. Congratulations on 100,000 on Twitter, that it, it shows Thank that you. you've been doing a good job. So when, when you're talking about the content that you put out, what you provide, what are you talking about? What seems to be the zeitgeist of alternative education these days? That's a really good question. I've done a lot of experimentation on this with Twitter and have discovered that there are some avenues of conversation that tend to really hit with people. I think it's a mixture of, like, I think people are looking for a mixture of things that validate intuitions that they already have about the system and what's wrong with it. And then simultaneously, they're also looking for new information. So if you can provide both of those things, I think you're serving two very significant desires that people have as there. Cause I think having concerns about a mainstream system or service is a tough position to be in because a lot of your, like a lot of people are unhappy with the education system, but they're not necessarily in close proximity to you. They're not necessarily your neighbors or your family or your friends. And so it can be tough to be looking at something and saying, this really doesn't seem to be working. This really doesn't seem to be serving my child or kids at large and to not have the other people around you see it. So facilitating conversations online where there's less of this geographical limitation where you can talk to people anywhere in the country or anywhere in the world who feel the same way that you do is really helpful. Um, Yeah, I was talking to a parent the other day and they said, we started out in public school, but one child was really behind and just wasn't being educated in a way that they connected with. And then another kid was way ahead of her class and wasn't really getting it because she was just too bright for the class. So we pulled them both out and worked at their speed. Now one of them wants to go to public school. One of them wants to stay in private school. If you post on Twitter, just an experiment, listener, on the 4th of July, our president says, Children belong to all of us, basically. If you post, parents are the ultimate authority in your child's education. 
you will not believe the pushback you get for that. You from your friends, your high school friends, your college friends, your libertarian friends, even you will not believe the pushback that when you say I am the ultimate authority in my parents ed- in my child's education, how many local school teachers start telling you how stupid parents are and how stupid you are to trust them. I mean, that Hannah is a real phenomenon and that has to be I've not homeschooled a child yet. Um, but I would imagine you talk to a lot of folks who go through that social shaming of opting out of the public education system. And what do you say to those parents? Yeah, it's, I've gotten, they, you exa- described exactly an experience I've had many times over on Twitter. I will post something about parents being able to be the primary educator for their kids. And I will get hate mail from teachers who are just appalled that I would post something so irresponsible as saying that kids can be taught by their parents at home. And a lot of parents get that pushback. My parents got that type of pushback when they decided to homeschool me two decades ago. The extended Wait, family you're homeschooled? You seem so normal. No, just kidding. That's another stigma. No, I, I literally have people say that to me out in the wild. It'll come up at a party or something that I was homeschooled and people are like, wait, really? You don't seem like a homeschooler. I'm I like, know. yeah, I actually do. You just don't know how to tell who we are because we're actually quite well adjusted. Um, yeah, that's the like, funny thing. My wife and her siblings are all homeschooled. They're way better adjusted than their peers. Their way, yeah, but that's another stigma is the socialization, which we talked a little bit about last time. But yeah, I mean, I think people go, I don't know how to get through this. I don't, yeah. I know my child's struggling one way or the other. What would you, advice would you give to somebody that needs to pull that trigger and how to deal with the social stuff? And then we'll pick on, yeah. pick out how they can move forward. Yeah. So I think. First and foremost, there's a lot more support out there for parents than is readily apparent when you're first looking at your community. Like if you go online and start looking for even homeschool resources in your county, if you live in a relatively populated area, there are probably Facebook groups of people who have gone through the exact same thing that you're going through and have decided to pull the trigger, pull their kids out and have learned a lot of things along the way that they can advise you on how to avoid or how to find or what resources to use. You can find internet communities of people who are interested in the specific, not just homeschooling in general, but the specific types of homeschooling that you're interested in. If you want to provide a classical education for your kids, if you want to provide a project-based education for your kids, if you want to provide a very Waldorf-inspired education, there are groups and communities and accounts and influencers and product providers and there's all different types of resources out there that will make you feel a lot less alone. And I think that's the first thing. This is a a challenging thing to do in isolation. It's not nearly as hard to do if you have support. So that's the first thing that I would say. The other thing that I would say is people, you have very good reasons for wanting to pull your kids out of school, probably. And you have really good reasons to think that you can do a better job educating your kid than the system can. And just because the people around you don't see that at first glance doesn't mean that your reasons aren't valid. And you can, you may be able to present a really great argument and have it fall on deaf ears. Sometimes the proof is in the pudding. Um, Sometimes you have to do the work for a while and have your kids at home and have them thriving and then have people say, okay, I guess you weren't crazy after all. That's what happened with my extended family, I think. 
but also people are very defensive about the education system. And I think some of it is because they were subjected to it and they may have subjected their kids to it. And so it's a tough thing to admit that you're wrong about that. And if somebody, and to even see that there might be a better option than that if you've already fully invested in it. And so I think people have a hard time seeing parents doing something different with their kids and not taking it a little bit personally and getting a little offended because of that. I didn't homeschool you. I sent you to public school. Do you think I messed you up? What are you, what are the, what are you implying by saying that school isn't good enough for your kid? And so I think we live in this very broad cultural trance where we all just think that public school is the way and it's what everybody does. And it's really hard to see something different than that, to step outside the matrix. And so just because you have doesn't mean that the people around you have the capacity to yet or have seen the right thing that snaps them out of it. And just because people are pushing against you does not mean you're wrong, but you might have to find support outside of your immediate community because they might not be ready to hear it. Yeah, that's one thing that I've noticed about a lot of my friend circles or family circles. It's if you're not making the same choice, let's say I'm renting and they're buying, but you're stupid for not having equity or not everybody may be in the same point or at the same, there's a, the comfort of validation by having other people like you choose the same things that you've chosen. I think you raise a great point there. The other thing I would say is I'm not anti-public school. I loved my schooling. I loved Plainfield High School. I love, I, I would go back to do my schooling. I was thinking about this as I was getting dressed this morning, I'm like, I'm so excited for like my kids to grow up and be kids and go to school or get schooled or whatever, because I genuinely love the experience. And I think everybody, I think what I'd love pe for people to take away from this conversation, and I think you would too, is that it's okay that there are other choices, right? If public schooling is right for you and your family, go for it. It doesn't mean your kid can't get a great education, but I look at my siblings or my siblings-in-laws and they're all, they all have great educations as homeschooling kids. And they, through the 20 years of schooling, have had different styles from classical to, I don't know, Waldorf and all these other things that you talked about, Montessori. And they all, it, it's very hyper-focused on their particular needs. And there's tons of support that their mom had in helping plan that education like the organization I'm a part of that does Map Your Future. There's an organization in Indiana that does a great job called the Indiana, it's IHAE, Indiana Homeschooling Association of, I may get, Indiana Association of Home Educators, excuse me, IHAE. And they have all kinds of one-on-one classes and conventions and there's tons of different choices. And Hannah, I don't know, maybe you've researched the history, I haven't looked into it, but where did that notion of there's one right choice as opposed to a myriad of choices? I'm in the grocery store yesterday marveling at the 15 choices of mustard that I have, but and we revel in that as a capitalist nation, but then if you want to make a different choice with your kid's education, you're bad, you're wrong. Where did that sentiment come from? It started in the 1800s. It started in Massachusetts specifically, and then extended through the rest of the states. And it's a product of, we've written about this at Rebel Educator. If people are actually curious, you can go to our website or you can look up the industrial history of American education, which is the title of the piece we wrote about it. And that'll come up. 
where we go into detail with all of the, we have all the receipts of the different documents and stuff of the people who are building the education system. But basically in the early or the mid 1800s rather, America was full of immigrants from different parts of Europe, very distinct cultural groups that did not get along. And especially the reason that this started specifically in the Northeast is because there were a lot of immigrants from groups that really weren't homogenizing well, like the Italians weren't getting along with the Irish, the Catholics weren't getting along, the freed slaves that were coming up from the South or the escaped slaves were again, that's a hard group to homogenize into these very Northern European cultures that are fresh off the boat. There was just a lot of social tensions. And simultaneously, we lived in a country that was expanding very quickly, but also industrializing. And the labor needs were very different. So prior to the mid 1800s, most of the world operated in these sort of corporate families where the whole family was living in one house, often mixed generations. They were working on often the farm. They were all working together. The kids were educated often at home because there wasn't a centralized education system. You might go to your local one room schoolhouse, or if you were in a bigger urban area, there might be different schools to choose from and bigger schools. But if you were out on the prairie somewhere, you were learning at home, your mom was teaching you. And you were working at home until you got married and went off to start your own corporate family. There was this very different sort of labor structure in America and productivity structure. And that started to fragment when we started to build factories and we started to big build bigger corporations that needed a lot of workers. And so America was trying to industrialize really aggressively. And in order to do that, they needed labor, they needed workers. And this was a two-pronged problem that was attempting to be solved which with the education system, which was how do we get all of these disparate groups of people to get along and homogenize into an American population instead of these very disparate identity groups coming from different parts of Europe? And then how do we cultivate a labor force that's going to work for a type of economy that we've like never really seen before? This was a very new thing in the history of the world. The granddaddy of American education, his name was Horace Mann, went to Prussia and studied their education model because the Prussians were really good at invading and conquering people. And then they were very good at subjugating those people. So they started basically these military schools in places that they conquered where they would take all the kids of the subjugated people and they would put them in the school and they would basically teach them how to be good Prussians. And it was intended to be a (laughs) talent funnel for the military. We conquer these people, we put them through the education system, they become Prussians, and then they can fight in our military when we go conquer the next people. It was like a very good little ecosystem they had going on. And Horace Mann was super impressed by this. He's like, wow, the Prussians can go conquer all these disparate people and make them all uniform Prussians. We need to do this in America. He brought back this education model. He started experimenting with building schools around it. The initial nationalized education system started to be formed. It wasn't until the 1920s that it was fully established as a national phenomenon where everybody was just going through this education system that was based out of DC. It was the same across the entire nation, but it became this government service in a way that it never had been before. And it became centrally dictated coming out of DC. And it was just part of the the forward moving wheels of progress 
And it was a thing that the government's offering offering schooling for free and it's necessary for your kids to learn how to function in this new world that we're all living in. And also both parents are working somehow. It becomes very convenient to send your kids to school. So I think some of the adoption stemmed from convenience. But now we live in a world where there is no living memory of anything else. All previous generations went through this very nationalized, industrialized education system. So we just assume this is how it's supposed to be. And we've had, there's been a schisming that's been happening since the 1970s, really, where there's different homeschooling movements, different types of micro schools, different alternative schools cropping up. There've been a couple different inflection points especially over the past couple of decades where we've seen a big shift, like around 2008, there was a really big shift into private schooling. The number of private schools really exploded. I have no idea why. And then again, around COVID, which is much more obvious why there was a big movement towards people moving into private schools and alternative schools and homeschooling. But even with these big shifts, it's still a very small subset of the population. I think 90% of American kids are in public schools. So it's just normal now. And when it's normal, it's weird to think about something else. People don't like to rock the boat. No. Yeah. Yeah. The, the Another note about the 20s, for instance, I hate to keep going back to Indiana, but it's the history I'm most familiar with. If you look at the Klan ran Indiana, and this happened across the country, but the reason we have a flag in every classroom is because they had spread the notion that Catholic schools were trying to un-American and switch un-American kids and take them away from Americanism and shift their allegiance towards the Pope. And they prayed towards the Pope every single day in Catholic schools. All this misinformation. The Pope was building a giant fact, like a giant palace in Cincinnati, outside of Cincinnati and Indiana, like to invade the state. Which, if the Pope were going to invade anywhere, why would you choose Indiana in the 1920s, right? <laughs> and then fast forward to the 50s, where you get the pledge being instituted as a way to fight communism. The battles that we see in schools around what is patriotic, what is moral, what is right, these are things that have existed in classrooms from the very beginning. I think it's sharper felt now because half the country may take a stance on one issue and doesn't want their kids learning about it. Obviously, we've had, when I was a kid, when I was going to school, when we did so sex education, my parents had to sign off on a waiver form and all that. And that was a, a big hot topic of parent schools. Hannah, really the best way to opt out and just make sure that your kids are taught your values is to choose an alternative form of schooling. 100%. And that's an incredibly controversial thing to say. You know why? Because, because and I'll tell you one reason why. Mm -hmm. Sorry to cut you off, but I'm on a, so no, a okay. soapbox now. <laughs> I, I think parents want to outsource moral formation for their kids. And if you, we grow up in a society that kind of tells you to be an adult child in a lot of ways. And when you have kids, you really have to start thinking about your own values, what you believe, how to form those values in another human being. And that's difficult. That's a lot of work, and it really gets in the way of scrolling Instagram. Sorry to stop because you were yeah, getting a pop. I think... <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no, I, mean, I it's, think... It's people want to outsource that moral formation because they don't really know what they believe. And at the same time, it's very controversial to say that you want to be the primary influence of your child's moral formation. It depends on the... It depends on the circles that you're speaking in, for sure. There's not a 
one size fits all across the board sentiment about this. But I think a lot of people think that if you have very strong moral convictions, you're probably trying to raise your kids to be a religious extremist or something. I don't think people think of instilling moral values as being a core part of your reason for educating your kids independently as being synonymous with not being a weirdo. I think people are some fringe part of society that's maybe dangerous. I think it actually scares people to hear people use that type of language, even though it's very prevalent in a lot of the cultural criticisms happening about public school over the past five years, especially. A lot of those are centered around morality, and yet people are weirdly afraid of it, I think. It feels like a, a, a bad word sometimes. And I think people think, okay, so you're sending your kids to like a Christian school or a Catholic school if you want to instill a set of morals and that's not always what it means um not lying not <laughs> murdering not punching people in the face as morals right it yeah. doesn't just have to be about sexuality you can avoid that conversation if you'd like moral moral formation is teaching your kids to be nice to each other nice to their mm -hmm. friends include kids that are different it's all of these are different pieces of your values and virtues that you're trying to instill in your kids that you practice on a daily. Every single person has their own set of moral values that they're trying to instill. It doesn't have to be declared. I think Christians and Christian conservatives and homeschoolers tend to be more zealous and defined. Mm -hmm. I think defining some of this stuff and fighting for these things make it a lot more obvious. But every single person, we want schools to teach some morals, right? I don't want my kid to get bullied. I don't want my kid to get hit. I want to make sure that they're taking care of, of friends that maybe are disadvantaged in some way or maybe are alienated in some way, right? Those are all moral values that we expect our community ha to have. And I agree. I don't know why we're so afraid to talk about that stuff. I think some of it is there's this, and this is purely hypothesis. I could be very wrong about this, but I wonder if some of this is it's a fear that's been instilled in us because of the origins of the system, which were very much, we want to make everybody get along and not just get along, but be interchangeable. So I don't care if you're fresh off the boat from Italy. I don't care if you're fresh off the boat from Poland. I don't care if your family's been here for five generations, but you're Quakers and that's why you came to America in the first place. Like you all need to be able to interchange into the same types of jobs and the same types of function within this broader economy. And therefore, if you're too distinctly different, it doesn't work. And so I think that we have this sort of cultural, purely in the realm of education, we think of morality and education almost being separate too. If, if, a, if a school has too much moral education, we start to think it's, we should use language around indoctrination about what's happening in that school. And I think we have, we're just like really weirdly culturally nervous about all of these things. Maybe rightfully, maybe not. I don't have a strong take on that in the context of this specific conversation. But I do think that people are almost afraid to say that they want to be too they want to morally educate their kids because they're afraid that their neighbors are going to think that they're indoctrinating their kids into something weird. Which, But at the same time, our education system does a terrible job at moral education. It's not really doing deep moral education most of the time. It's teaching kids how to function with each other inside the confines of an institution. 
but an individual teacher sometimes do a great job of this, but it's not really about moral education. It's much more vapid than that. Yeah. I think you and I are taking it a step further than maybe a lot of people are listening. Moral formation mm-hmm. shouldn't be the job of the school. They should just teach reading, writing, arithmetic, facts, history, right? Mm-hmm. Leave the moral formation to me. Why would you want moral formation to be a part of your kid's education to begin with, Hannah? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm not advocating that it should be. Some people in the education world have a very strong stance that it should. Some people have a very strong stance that it shouldn't. My stance is much more like generally with different education models. There are a lot of different approaches that I like, and I think different ones are a great fit for different kids. And I'm much more an advocate for there being a lot of options as opposed to just one. So I don't actually have a strong stance one way or the other. I think I probably will eventually have a strong stance on the moral education side of things. But like right now, it just feels like a sticky wicket. It's like a a complicated thing that people get stuck on and it's not necessarily. Did you watch the Duggar thing? No. Okay. So my wife, should I? yeah, you should definitely watch the Duggar documentary. It was, I wouldn't say healing for my wife and her family, but there was a lot of opening up the box of their, and they, her parents were great about options, but mm-hmm. I've had conversations with several people where it's, if you clamp down too hard, this is one of the problems I think with alternative education homeschooling is this is your view of morality, of history, of the constitution, of and if you think anything other than this, you're the problem, right? Where it almost turns into gaslight, gaslighting. Yeah, so I agree. Like there, Let's talk about some of those options, because when you say openness, I think what people think is what I'm talking about, which is the Duggars, and you're going to read David Barton's textbook on American history, and this is the only type of history, and man was writing dinosaurs, right? That's their view. Families going to the Ark. Nothing wrong with that. Just saying that's, I think, people's stereotypical view, but... Like when you say openness and different models, give me an idea of some of those different models that a parent who's... All right, I'm going to make you, Hannah, the educational fairy godmother of Michael, my new son, who is two (laughs) weeks old. What are some different things that I ought to be thinking about? And once he hits four or five, like which directions should we be thinking about? Yeah, there are so many options. First of all, it's both- Matthew. I keep calling him Michael. His name is Matthew. I'm sorry. <laughs> I don't, I don't, you posted on Facebook about that. I don't even. I just did it. You just saw it in real time. I'm just, I'm just assuming that you've had zero sleep since baby has been born. I have and- slept great. I'm the worst husband. I haven't woken up one time with this kid. She's up half the night, but then I take care of him during the day while she naps. But it works. But no, I'm just dumb. <laughs> There are so many, there are so many options out there for different educational alternatives. There's so much, which I think is both overwhelming for parents sometimes, but it's also incredibly exciting because you don't have to try to shove your kid into an option that doesn't fit. You can just find a different option. And sometimes it takes a few tries for a family to find the right option for their kid. And sometimes there are different options that are correct at different stages in a child's development. And I think that's important as a preamble to this because you don't have to know exactly what model is going to be right for your kid up until they turn 18. It's, you don't even have to know what model is going to be right for your kid next year. Like you can, the public school system is so bad in terms of academic outcomes that you can shuffle your kid through three or four different schools over the course of like their elementary years or their middle school years or whatever, and they can still catch up just fine to where they're supposed to be. So I think in some ways the pressure is very low and there's room for some experimentation. But 
for younger kids, I'll also say as a preamble that kids catch up on what they learn in elementary school very quickly. And I think a lot of the fundamental sort of ways of being that a school teaches are more important than the specifics of the academics because you can catch up on anything you're missing academically super fast if and when you need to. So I think sometimes people put too much pressure on early childhood education where, again, you can adjust to where your kid's at developmentally and what they're interested in and what they seem to be curious about and ready for, and then catch them up on anything else that they don't appear to be ready for yet later. But for younger kids, Montessori is a great option. Montessori actually has, it's considered to be for zero through six-year-olds. So there is there are Montessori resources and Montessori schools that you can use very young with your child. I'm a really big fan of Montessori early childhood, like child care that then leads into like preschool and kindergarten. It's really focused on a child's developing autonomy and a child's developing self-direction and it focuses very heavily on kids building confidence in their own competence very quickly so one core component of a Montessori approach is that if your child is trying to do something you don't just jump in and help them you let them do as much as they possibly can if they're struggling and they ask for help maybe you encourage or you find like the minimum thing that you can do to help the process along without doing the whole thing for them so like they're trying to tie their shoe and they're not very good at it yet and they're struggling and the impulse might just be to jump in and tie it for them because you just want to be helpful or you just want to get out the door but really they're just struggling with like, making the, the second loop that they need they can make one loop just fine but then their fingers are like really struggling to do the second one so you like help them with the second loop but then you let them actually like finish tying the bow you're allowing them to take control of as much as possible early on. So Montessori is great. Waldorf is lovely too. I had a very Montessori or Waldorf inspired elementary education, Which even though I was homeschooled. Waldorf schools are, I would put them in the same very general category as Waldorf in terms of just types of education. Waldorf is very artistically inspired. There's a lot of the elements that I had in my elementary education. We did a lot of art around the different subjects we were learning about. Waldorf has a real, a whole philosophy around having a lot of natural materials for your kids as they're like beeswax crayons instead of your normal Crayola crayons and using nice paper and wooden blocks to play with instead of plastic. Lots of time spent in nature, lots of time spent doing things with your hands, like learning how to knit or learning how to bake. So there are a lot of influences of that in my elementary education. I think Waldorf is lovely for families that have a school locally and are interested in that. Forest schools are really cool. Those are more for homeschoolers usually because usually it's a one day a week thing. But basically the model is you go to the woods somewhere, you go to a park and you like learn about the natural world one day a week. It's super cool. And I think spending time outside is great for especially young kids. And that can be a really cool if you're homeschooling and you're looking for supplements, that can be a great model. Micro schools are fantastic. There's a huge micro school movement happening around the country. Carrie McDonald at the Foundation for Economic Education is a fantastic resource on this for people who actually want to go down the rabbit hole. She has a podcast where she interviews people who run micro schools every week. And there's just tons of stories of people all over the country running these often very small, I think like a one room schoolhouse for the 21st century. So usually it's one teacher with a pot of, I don't know, eight to 15 kids 
often it's mixed age. Sometimes it's running out of someone's home. Sometimes it's running out of a church. Sometimes the school actually has a building. Sometimes there are multiple teachers. Like there's, there are lots of different ways that a micro school can, can work. There's a lot of anarchy around what the model is. People can really be creative with it, but micro schools are a really awesome way for kids to get personalized attention in a school that's built around a very specific set of values or an educational approach or serving a specific type of child and instead of learning proclivities that because they're not trying to serve everybody in a zip code they can really cater to a specific niche and then people who really fit that niche can come to the school so micro schools are awesome Tons of online options too, which is a little tougher with young kids. This is more of a elementary, middle, high school type thing, but there are a lot of really cool programs online that are growing very quickly and they're they're built in all different sorts of ways. So there's a school called Synthesis that teaches kids through games, basically, and prob- like problem solving games and logic games. There's a school called Cubrio that builds itself as a world school and they have kids all over the world taking classes. You can be in Indiana taking a class with a kid in Indonesia or something. It's super cool from like a just exposure standpoint. There's tons of different stuff like that too. There's so much that's out there that is not just homeschooling. And we can talk about homeschooling stuff too if you yeah, want. Yeah, what, what I heard was you work with other people to educate your child, not you have to sit down and read 17 books on the history of America and write your own textbook. (laughs) Yeah. If you want to homeschool your kid, I've gotten a lot of flack for saying this on Twitter, uh, but I stand by it. It's 100% true. If you can listen to your child and hear where they're at, you can facilitate their natural curiosity and you can, formulate a google search you can homeschool your kid that's all you need to do <laughs> that's outrageous that. but it's true if you can google math worksheets for third grade math if you can google khan academy because you don't know what the url is if you can google free science programs online for kids or whatever you can find all of the resources that you need to homeschool a child you have access to a library you have access to like local resources too like often county parks and stuff have science classes that your kids can take you can go to a museum and do a tour like there's all different types of supplemental things that you can do but like really if you can find resources online you know how to navigate an internet browser the amount of information that is accessible to us that is tailored specifically to different grade levels different curiosities different needs you can provide an education that is flat out better than what people are getting in a classroom with pretty minimal effort and without having to know all the answers. You don't have to be great at math to teach your child math because you can find answers. You can help the child find answers to the questions that they have yeah. to help them through the process of and, learning. And you mentioned those local resources too, even something like a Facebook group. There's probably mm-hmm. just in a state like Indiana, like 40 different Indiana groups and most of them are hyper local based i'm sure maybe it's different in california where it's not as amenable to homeschooling indiana is very open to homeschooling but even that may may make it more likely that there are local groups start with facebook and find some groups and if you run into people that you disagree with you don't have to just throw out the whole project because you didn't like that person or if you did if you're trying one curriculum or one 
way of doing thing, it doesn't mean that you have to continue to do that. I think that's one thing that you brought up that I really like that I've noticed from my wife and her family. It's like flexibility is really great and it's really key and it keeps you as a parent engaged. And I think one of the reasons the homeschool kids don't have the same issues with feelings of abandonment <laughs> is because their parents are listening to them and really engaging with them, And unless they're the type of parents that are giving sermons. But you mentioned Carrie McDonald's podcast. I definitely should have her on to talk about that. Do you know the name Great. of the podcast? Uh, yeah, it's called Liberated, with capital E-D at the end Smart. for education. And while you're adding that to your podcast roles, you should check out the forthcoming, if not out now, Hannah Frankman pod, the Hannah Frankman show. Is that what it's called? The Hannah Frankman podcast. Got it. Okay. It is brand new. So I don't expect anybody to know the name yet. It is launching. We are in the launch process as we speak. So how many episodes are going to be out when you check it out? I don't know, but you should absolutely check it out we have we talk a lot about education so if you are interested in things we're talking about here there's a lot more of that on the show i talk to a bunch of different people who run schools and programs and our parents and all different types of stuff like that about the ins and outs of different ways of educating kids but not just that no not just that also a lot of liberty stuff liberty and freedom less from the politics standpoint more from the lifestyle standpoint which i personally find a lot more interesting it's yeah politics affects me but the thing that affects me the most is the philosophies and approaches with how I'm living my own life uh so I'm I'm pretty libertarian ideologically but I am very libertarian in the way I'm doing this whole life thing and so I talk a lot about that too on the show and things like I've taken a pretty unconventional path from obviously growing up homeschooled but then skipping college working at startups starting my own businesses doing freelance doing freelancing, being a full-on entrepreneur and business owner now, like lifestyle design, I guess is the best term to describe this sort of idea of how you live a life on your own terms. I talk to a lot of guests that I find interesting about things like that too. So if that's of interest, we also have some conversations about that there. All right. The Hannah Frankman podcast. Make sure you check that out on your podcast app. We'll also, do you have a website or anything that I could link to? Uh, yeah. Uh, HannahFrankman.com. You can find, I have links to my social media. You can find uh, links to the podcast. You can find links to Rebel Educator slash School by Design. Everything that I'm working on is, that's a central hub for it. All right, cool. I'll make sure that is in the show notes. Hannah, thanks so much for joining me. I look forward to talking to you. Maybe we can talk again and here in a couple months and uh, talk, keep talking more about uh, Matthew's education now that I have put you in charge of it. I would love that. Let's do it. All right. Thanks so much for joining me. Make sure you check out hannahfrankman.com. That's with an H, Hannah with an H, and frankman.com. Thanks so much for joining me here on The Chris Spangle Show. We will see you again soon. This podcast was produced and edited by Chris Spangle and Leaders and Legends, LLC. If you're interested in starting a podcast or taking yours to the next level, please contact us at leadersandlegends.net.